Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. It was Popular Mechanics in 1905 that printed the following paragraph. Look down a railroad track, four feet, eight and one half inches, came to be adopted as our standard railway gauge, that is the width between the two rails. It would seem that the responsibility for the choice of this measurement rests with George Stevenson, inventor of the locomotive. While inspecting some portions of a Roman wall, through which chariots used to be driven, he discovered that deep ruts had been worn in the stone. And upon, a, upon measuring the distance between them, he found it to be four feet, eight and one half inches. And not doubting that the Romans had adopted this gauge only after much experience, he determined to use it as a standard in the construction of his railroads. From that time on, this measurement has been the standard gauge in both England and the United States. From that paragraph has come this extraction, copied and pasted a million times. And you may have seen this in your inbox or on your social media pages. Quote, The U.S. standard railroad gauge is four feet, eight and a half inches. That's an exceedingly odd number. Why was that gauge used? Because that's the way they built them in England. Why did the English build them like that? Because the first rail lines were built by the same people who built the pre-railroad tramways, and that's the gauge they used. Well, why did they use that gauge? Because the people who built the tramways used the same tools and jigs that they used for building wagons, which used that same wheel spacing. Okay, why did the wagons have that particular odd wheel spacing? Well, if they tried to use anything else, the wagon wheels would break on some of the old long-distance roads in England because the spacing of the wheel ruts. So who built those old rutted roads? The first long-distance roads in Europe and England were built by Imperial Rome for their legions. Roman war chariots first formed these initial ruts which everyone else has had to match for fear of destroying their wagon wheels. And then this. The United States standard railroad gauge of four feet, eight and one half inches, derives from the original specification for an imperial Roman war chariot. Specifications and bureaucracies seem to live forever. So the next time you are handed something and you wonder... What horse's ass came up with it? You may be exactly right. 
because the Imperial Roman war chariots were made just wide enough to accommodate the back ends of two war horses. Thus, we have the original answer, the answer to the original question. And then there is sometimes this addendum, by the way, and I've read this before as well, that the solid rocket boosters for the space shuttle are also enslaved to the Roman chariot because these boosters, the size that they are, being manufactured in Utah and having to travel to Cape Canaveral had to fit on a train and go through the train tunnels. Well, this story is mostly true. Not exactly. But close. The truth is that there were multiple railway widths in the United States until the Civil War. When the Union won, they not only set slaves free, they established the standard railroad gauge of four feet, eight and a half inches, because that's what they used in the North. But I don't want to completely tear down an internet legend or miss the genuine truth of this tale. And it is this. Once tracks get laid down and the ruts are deeply in place, it's almost impossible to break free from those. Institutionally, in government, family systems, corporations, churches, personal coping methods, in theological thinking and religious belief. This is how it is someone is told by an authority. That someone says, this is how it is to his or her pupils or underlings or parishioners, and so it goes. The tracks are laid by the early pioneers And everyone who follows seems to stay right there, never considering that there might be other ways of understanding other roads to other destinations besides the deep grooves that have long been in place. Or, and this is usually the case, jumping the ruts might prove to be too difficult or even dangerous or destructive. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the lectionary reading for today, Matthew chapter 3. It is the baptism of Jesus. Just like the Gospels, the church calendar moves very quickly from the birth of Jesus to Epiphany, which was this past Friday, the arrival of the Magi from the East, past Jesus' entire childhood to the inauguration and beginning of His ministry. Since we know precious little about his earliest years, the calendar just moves past with no speculation. Unlike John Prine, he wrote a masterful song called Jesus, the Missing Years, sometime back, where Jesus travels to France and on to Spain and Italy. He gets married, but it doesn't work out, but the Catholic Church won't grant him a divorce. He discovers the Beatles and records with the Rolling Stones, and on and on it goes. I commend that song to you. But it's all speculation, of course. So we move to the baptism. Jesus' baptism. And with that, an exploration of what it all means. Baptism, that is. Because for the longest of times, we have been rolling along in the trenches of long-standing interpretations. Narrow, 
sometimes constrictive, deep interpretations. This is just how it is, we have been told. But maybe we can blaze a new path, not new for the sake of being new, but by staying fixed in one path, there may be something that we are missing. First question, why was Jesus baptized? Well, that's the question John was asking too, or something like it. What are you doing here? Uh, I shouldn't be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus' response isn't complicated, just do it, he basically says. More accurately, for now, this is how it should be, because we must do all that God wants us to do. So why did God want Jesus to be baptized? Well, before we answer that question, the earliest commentary from the second century that we have on the baptism of Jesus says that Jesus did it to please his mother. Haven't we all been there? My mother-in-law was a child living in Blue Ridge, Georgia, and she somehow, in that hard-shell Baptist life, made it to her teenage years without going forward at a revival meeting and kneeling at the mourner's bench and getting properly saved and getting baptized. So when she turned 13, it was time. And they had the revival, and Ruth had promised a friend that she would go and be baptized, and then Ruth chickened out. And it's not because Ruth didn't have faith. Ruth couldn't swim. It happens to a lot of us mountain folks. And when you can't swim, and they tell you, we're going to take you down into this rushing river, even if Jesus commands that you do it, the prospect of possibly meeting Jesus face to face that very day overcomes any sense of obedience that you have. So she went, run, and hid. And that preacher came looking for her. Went to her mama's house and under extreme interrogation, her mother finally gave up the news of where Ruth was. And they went and got her and drug her down to have her baptized. But her mother, who had already been baptized once, was baptized with her. And I have the suspicion It was for harboring a fugitive all along. There's always a lot of guilt manipulation that can be had when it comes to baptism. I don't think uh, we have to worry about Jesus being guilted into it by his mother or by a preacher or by his siblings. He is following God. He is actually following a well-established Jewish tradition. The very one that John the Baptist was practicing. And John wasn't the first. Christians did not invent baptism. Neither did Jesus for that matter. There was a centuries long practice in Judaism of ritualistic bathing. Baptizing. In fact, at the Qumran community just over the hillside from where John was baptizing. And the community that John had once been a part of. The members of that radical, reform-minded community were baptized twice a day, every day. In the morning and in the evening, to remind themselves that they were children of the light, as they called themselves, and that they were not children of the darkness. 
But John's understanding was that this kind of act should be for the masses. A a, a bunch of retreatists in the desert should not be the only ones being baptized. All people should have this opportunity to show a change of life. A change of direction. And so John takes it public. John goes viral with it. And he won't leave it in the desert. He takes it down to the river. Come be baptized is his invitation. As a sign of repentance. As an act of crossing over to the light. As a confirmation. There's another word that we Christians have taken up as our own. A confirmation of your identity as a citizen and a participant in God's new world. Now that's what Jesus is affirming with his own baptism and stacking up the metaphors now, just as the children of Israel went wading into that water to cross the Jordan and to go into the promised land, now Jesus goes down to that same Jordan and descends into the waters because he will now lead a new people into a new promised land of renewal and restoration and hope and peace. That's all going on in this one little image from Matthew chapter 3. For Jesus, it was more than a ritual. It was what Karl Barth called in the German, der Geiger, a pointer, an indicator, a sign. Jesus' baptism was a sign of something to come. The beginning of something extraordinary pointing at something more significant than the act itself, though no one gathered on the banks of the river that day could have understood it. This baptism, and I would say to you, your baptism is a confession that you have joined a new community. You are part of a new life. You are now on board with co-creating a brand new world. And it is here that the old train has to jump the tracks. And here are those tracks, those ruts of previously understanding what must be broken. The number one view of baptism, the oldest, is something called the sacramental view. You are most familiar with this position because of Roman Catholicism. Catholics teach mainly because of one individual, St. Augustine, That original sin must be washed away from each and every individual. You are born into this world supernaturally contaminated. And the sacred act of baptism, the sacrament of baptism, is the cleansing solution. Baptism washes the soul so that a person can progress toward salvation. Thus, a person who is not baptized according to this belief, is never free of original sin. They are always in danger of hellfire and perdition. This is why your Catholic grandmother or your Catholic friends just cannot understand why you won't baptize that baby if you choose not to. Because they really believe, they have been taught, that this innocent child is contaminated And if it doesn't get under those waters with the proper priest and the proper incantation and the proper words, the soul is lost. Mainline Protestantism shares some of these similarities. 
Methodists, Presbyterians, Anglicans, Episcopalians, and a few others baptize babies as well. They also speak of the sacramental act of baptism, but most of these groups don't go as far as requiring baptism for salvation. It's still sacramental, an act of receiving grace, but it is a softer position than the Roman Catholic position. And then from sacramental, we board the train called symbolism. This is a product of the Reformation, the Radical Reformation, particularly one man, this man, Ulrich Zwingli. Ulrich Zwingli was a radical reformer, and I am speaking of my own Protestant ancestors who not only pulled away from the Catholic Church, but pulled away from the fusion of church and state. The Anabaptists, the Hutterites, the Mennonites, and others. They reformed not only Catholic theology, but Catholic and mainline Protestant structure. I could talk about that for the next three hours. I will not. The radical reformers drew from the biblical and church tradition this idea of symbolism. It was in the song I just sang. Down with the old man, up with the new. As the body goes into the water, it is a symbol that the old life has passed. And as the person comes out of the water, a symbol of resurrection that they have been redeemed and saved by Christ. Those in this tradition today, Baptists, Adventists, Pentecostals, Disciples of Christ, Charismatics, Evangelicals, generally take this symbolic view. It's something that believers should do not to be saved, but to symbolize the work of Christ in their lives. And by the way, that's one of the major sticking points between Protestants and Catholics when it comes to theology. There are other alternatives out there, regenerational baptism, initiation baptism, for example, and then there are others. And then there's all the the controversy about how we should baptize. Should we pour? Should we sprinkle? Should we aspirate? Should we immerse? Should we dip? Should we squirt? Should we spritz? Should we squeegee? Should we power wash? I don't know. I think some people would benefit from a power washing baptism. Might be onto something here. But I do know this the sacramental view is too heavy handed and too superstitious. And the symbolic view is too passive and too individualistic. Yet, we have glided along on these tracks without thought or without critique for hundreds upon hundreds of years following the ruts that have been laid down for us. So here is an alternative. See baptism not as a sacrament, an incantation performed by a properly ordained priest using sanctioned words and rites, or it doesn't count. See baptism not merely as a symbol, a nice little add-on to your personal faith experience. No. Let's understand baptism as a sign, a pointer that something is happening. Not only in terms of personal salvation or profession of faith, but something is happening in this world. And that something is a new humanity, the new creation that God is bringing, a new way of living and being. I get into the water, or I have it poured over my head for that matter, not as a means to escape this world, but as a commitment, as a participant with God to transform this world. Oh look, you got baptized, now you get to go to heaven when you die. 
that is never communicated in the words or the work of Jesus. No matter how long we have been riding in those ruts. You're baptized. Isn't it wonderful what the Lord has done for you? Of course it is. But this is about what God wants to do for all people and all things. Not just me with my little privatized personal Jesus. I think what should be said to every new baptismal candidate, to every person fresh from the waters, is something like this. You have now committed yourself to God's radical, grace-filled, hope-soaked, barrier-breaking community that is and lives differently in this world. You are the sign of God's revolutionary humanity, a humanity that works with God to bless and renew everything that is. Now that is trans- transformational. That is a baptism that serves much more than our personal interest or keeps us pleased with ourselves. It pushes us out into the world to love and to serve and to heal and to restore just as Jesus did. Jesus came up out of that water and He went to work. And as Christians, we should come up out of the water and get busy living the lives that we have been graced to live. Frederick Buechner retells a story from Ramakrishna, a Hindu guru from the 1800s. And it's a story that Buechner calls the tiger. So it was that a flock of goats discovered a motherless tiger cub at the edge of the jungle. The goats adopted the poor thing as their own, and he was brought up by them to speak their language, to emulate their ways, to eat their food, and in general, to believe that he was a goat himself. For years, it was like this until one day, a full-grown and magnificent king tiger came along and all the goats scattered in fear. The young tiger goat was left alone to confront this massive, fearful intruder. And he was afraid, yet somehow, he was not afraid. The king tiger, unaware that the youngster had been an orphan, asked him, what are you doing here? What is meant by this masquerade of yours? But all that the young tiger could do in response was to bleat nervously and nibble at the grass. So the king tiger carried him to a pool where he had him look at their two reflections side by side. Then he offered him his first taste of raw meat and at first the young tiger recoiled from it. But as he ate a little more, he began to feel it in his own blood and the truth gradually became clear to him. Lashing his tail and digging his claws into the ground, the young beast finally raised his head high and roared, for he was a tiger, not a goat. And then Beekner concludes as thus. Despite all the profound differences between religions, they largely agree with each other on one fundamental and basic point. Human beings as we usually exist in this world, are not what we were created to be. The goat isn't really a goat at all. He is really a tiger. Except that he doesn't know that he is. Or to describe this in Christian language, we were created in the image of God, but something has gone awry. 
but I believe that in Jesus there is power to turn goats into tigers, to give life to the half alive, to give life even to the dead. What He gives us is our own selves. He tells us our true names and who we really are because deep down we have the suspicion that we were created for more. And baptism is acting on that belief and that it is Christ who will transform both us and the world.